Today on the show, we take a hard look at $70,000 golf club memberships. We take a look at how to handle and assess your risk tolerance, and we reassess the value of the gap year. Welcome to the ultimate crowdsource personal finance show. This is your Friday Roundup. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Lots to cover. We're going to dig through this past week's episode with Rob Berger, formerly from Doe Roller, now writing at Retire Before Mom and Dad. And Brad, one of the things that I loved about this episode, one of the, his, his statements that stood out to me is, start with the end goal. Where do you want to end up? And then where he worked, he made the choice to work his way backwards. And for him, that was a, a framing decision that allowed him to realize his goal was not to be debt-free. Debt-free might be a metric that he would hit along the way, but his ultimate goal was freedom, financial independence, options. And working towards that actually helped inform his strategy. Yeah, I really love the mindset here with Rob. And like you said, he said, I always start with where I want to end up. The ultimate goal was financial freedom. We term it financial independence. Rob calls it financial freedom, but it's the same goal ultimately. It's getting to that point. And, and when you inform all of your decisions with that, then that is the guiding light. It's similar to a mission statement, in essence, for a company. When you assess every decision, like the one that he pointed out was the 401k match. He said it would be, quote, the dumbest thing ever (laughs) (laughs) to miss your match, which is free money. This is part of your salary, is really how you should think about your 401k match. You are giving up 100% match, which is free salary. So he said that would be the dumbest thing ever to miss this match if your ultimate goal was financial freedom. And when you look at every decision through that prism, it really does change every aspect of decision-making. I really love that. And Brad, one of the things that struck me is there's different stages, I think, when it comes to complacency. There is drift, which is something that Dominic Cortuccio has talked about extensively. We had him on the show, talked about it in episode 33, had him back on the podcast to talk about a little bit further. Drift to me is like death by complacency. You know, you're at a, if your life is a scale of one to 10, you're like at a six, right? And like things are just okay enough to have you not really question anything. This is what gets you into a place of mind where you're willing to spend $70,000 for a golf club membership because you can, you never question the insanity of that proposition. And then you find out still while drifting that you don't even want to play there because your friends aren't there, because who can afford $70,000 for a golf club membership so you end up going to pay to go play somewhere else? And there's this point that can happen in time when you have what Dominic framed as an awakening, right? Something, an external force thrust itself upon you, and in that moment, you realize you need to make a change. And from there, you may make some forward progress, but many people have that, but then feel stuck. I was thinking about this actually this morning. Stuck is actually an improvement over drift because stuck, you want to go somewhere. You, you have an idea, you have a goal in mind, but you don't know how to get there. Complacency, you're not even, you don't know you're stuck. You're just, you just are. 
Stuck is like, you're taking that next step. You want to go somewhere, but now you don't know the mechanism to actually get there. And in that, that's when you start making a game plan. That's when you start bringing new information in the fold. Stuck's actually an improvement over this death by complacency drift state. And for him, this realization that this wasn't his priorities. This wasn't the life that he wanted to live. He was living his father's life and prioritizing those over his own was a massive wake-up call that allowed him to reprioritize his most precious non-renewable resources time and buy back decades of his life. And really, one of the things he had to sacrifice is a $70,000 golf membership that he didn't even use. So Brad, I admit that I'm fully winging it there with this paradigm that I've just created, but I was driving uh, to the gym this morning and I real I had, the, I had this thought flash through my mind that if you are stuck, you're, you're, at least you're not drifting anymore. Yeah, that's really interesting. When you were talking about that, I quickly Googled. It reminded me of something that I've read before, and I think it's the hierarchy of competence. And there are four stages. And I guess you're describing drift as akin to unconscious incompetence. Mm. And then the next stage up is conscious incompetence. So you're still (laughs) incompetent, so it's not all that much better, but at least you're conscious of it. So that's what you're describing as being stuck. That's kind of an interesting take on it. And I was fascinated with the way that Rob made this decision. I asked him if there was this awakening. And his response simply was, the things that I bought, they weren't making me happy. He bought everything that was there for this law partner's lifestyle, right? The $70,000 country club, the fancy watch, the car, all the trappings. But once he got there, and really he had worked his entire life for this, once he got there, he wasn't happy. He also said, we've got one life to live, and I just don't think I want to go down that route and make my entire life about this big law firm. And it's pretty cool to have that realization that, sure, this has been my goal. I've had this as a goal for, really, at that point, it was 11 years, eight years as part of this law firm, three years in law school. Obviously, he did exceedingly well to get there to being a law partner at a major law firm that quickly. And yet, he gets there and says, all right, this isn't for me. I've got to step off this hamster wheel and figure something out. And so from there, he's actually creating a goal, right? This big audacious goal of paying off all of his debt within seven years. And I want to point out that he failed. He failed, but he's not a failure, right? He's not a failure because along the way, he created a system to achieve that. And even though he didn't hit that, he was able to design this incredible life for himself and his family. And I want want people in the audience to pull that back and look at their own lives. Setting the goal is great. It's awesome, but it's not the end all be all. If you set a goal, you anchor yourself to a 50% savings rate and you fail, but you only hit a 30% savings rate, you've built a system that is allowing you to save six times more than the average person in this country. That's incredible. You know, it's just moving you forward. It's okay to have a goal, but don't be anchored to that. The key is that you take action on these ideas, that you turn intention into action. And goals are great, but at the end of the day, you got to get off the couch and you got to do something. And in this case, it can be these small choices and nothing should be off limits. As a thought exercise, at the end of the episode, he gave us some great insight into challenge these societal norms, these what ifs. And, and the whole point of the experiment is that anything that you just say is like dogma, I will not challenge this. I won't question it right there. You should slow down on that and say, well, what if, what if I got rid of cable TV? Well, then I wouldn't be able to watch my sports. Well, what if I couldn't watch my sports? Well, what if, what if play that out in any situation? You know, what if we move to a different city? Well, we, we, you know, well, 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 then this, 
But what if, what if keep going that? And at the end of that route, after you followed that thought experiment through five or six or seven iterations and applied that to every aspect of your life with each individual question, you may not take action, all these, but at least you've gone through the experiment. If you realize that the worst possible case scenario is that you could always go back. You could always pick up that subscription service again. You can always go back to that drift. It makes it not as scary. And it gives you permission to try things that maybe you weren't willing to consider before. Yeah, Jonathan, he said about his car, he was going to run an experiment. The worst thing that happened if he went to having no car is, if it didn't work out, I'd buy another car. No big deal is exactly what he said. It's a simple experiment. When you reframe it as that, there's no huge downside to this. It's okay. I figured out it didn't work. I go back and I buy my car. Big deal. I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know. I was talking about cutting cable with someone. They basically keep their $80 a month cable package because they want to watch college football. They have one particular team they want to watch. And, you know, my mind is kind of spinning of, well, what's another way to look at that problem? They're spending roughly $1,000 a year to watch one team's college football games. That team plays about 10 games a year. So you're at now $100 per game that you're paying in essence. Many of those games are on over-the-air free TV. So now you're talking, even if we say five of the games locally. Are, if that are, was on your NBC local every single right? week. <laughs> yeah, you're paying, you know, but so let's say even five will be charitable. So you're paying $1,000 a year to watch those other five games. Now, what if you reframe that and said, I'm going to take my spouse out. We're going to go out and get wings and beer. We'll go to a local sports bar for those five games. Even if we spend 50 bucks each time, we're literally cutting our expenses by three quarters in that scenario. You cut the cable and you have a great time. Like it's looking at a problem a little bit differently. So in that case, they saved $750 out of the thousand that they were spending for these five dopey college football games to sit at home. And this is a very silly example that I just kind of made up on the fly, but it's a different way of looking at a problem. And that's a cool experiment. What else can you find in your life that is akin to that? I challenge you out there in the audience. There's got to be something that you're spending money on that there's probably not only a different way to run this experiment, but a better way. Netflix canceled my show, The OA. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a pretty cool show, a little sci-fi show. It's, it's, it's pretty fantastic. They canceled it. And um, I canceled Netflix. I said, fine, not going to pick up my show again. I canceled it. <laughs> I tell you what, canceling Netflix, it felt like a betrayal on my part. Like, oh, I'm giving up. Right, right. I'm, I'm canceling. And then, you know, a few months later, they had another show that I was interested in. I picked it back up. Realize that just because you signed up for a subscription because it was adding value at a specific point in your life, you can cancel it as soon as it's not adding value. And then you can immediately, it was one button click to add it back. You can always get it back. You know, and it's, I realized there are seasons of life where we watch more TV and there are seasons of life where we watch nothing. The average American family watches 4.3 hours of television a day and then complains of chronic busyness. And I realize as crazy as 4.3 hours a day sounds, there was a season in my life where we would start the day, I would let my son watch about an hour of television in the morning. And then he would have about 30 minutes of dance party music a night before he goes to bed. And then we would watch an hour to an hour and a half of a TV show, right? And I realized that we fell in that trap. And as soon as I realized that, like you cannot complain about the busyness of your life and then simultaneously binge watch four hours of television a day. You have no excuse. Cut it. And if you can claim three or four hours of your life back immediately and then simultaneously save 15, 20, 30, 200 plus dollars a month, 
You can always get it back. If it's making your life that miserable to not have television, go press that one button click and get it back. That's fine. But have you even, have you even tested it? Okay. Are you, are you, are you listening to this saying preaching to the choir right now? Is that, am I? Oh, preach. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I felt it. It was a little ranny. That's all. (laughs) And what's funny, Jonathan, is I actually did this. We just did this in the last month. Everyone is well aware at this point of how much we love Survivor. Survivor. Right. Season 495. No, I think it's 39 now. And and of course, we also, when we ran out of Survivor seasons, we started watching The Amazing Race. So we had CBS All Access. We had it for a month or two. And we had caught up. So we canceled it. Now the new seasons are out. So we have a couple seasons backlogged that we want to binge watch. I just picked back up with CBS All Access. And the cool thing is, they welcome me back with open arms. With a better deal. With a free month, (laughs) which, which is literally all we were going to use anyway. So I got it for free because they were thrilled to have me back as a customer. So clearly that wasn't my intention. I went in expecting to pay for a month of this, but that was a nice little side benefit. And we're getting this thing for nothing. But even still, even if we had to pay the eight or 10 bucks a month, it's better than just having this thing drift every single month like we were doing with Netflix, which we also just recently canceled. And so really what I want you to hear as if you're one of these individuals that has pot committed to a 70 or is considering a $70,000 invitation to a golf club membership because you've made it. I want you just to step back and say, is that really something you want to do? Are your friends even there? Will you even want to go once you've actually gotten access to this club? This is your chance. They're not going to give you a refund. You don't have to do this. And even if you've already invested the money, are you getting sufficient value to justify the thousands of dollars a year of additional cost that you're incurring by being a member there? Choose if I not really friends of the golf course in, in this case. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Public golf courses, low cost golf courses, go for it. Go for it. $70,000 invitations. Makes me feel a little judgy. But uh, anyways, <laughs> we'll switch gears here. I'm sure there is a golf club member that is saying, ah, guys, chill out a little bit. I want to talk about risk tolerance for a few minutes, Brad. And I know this is something he had a very interesting take on assessing risk tolerance. And because of his assessment, the way that that changed his financial plan. Yeah, this was really interesting. The quote was, as you get older, your risk tolerance goes down. And it's not just because you're going to retire sooner. It's because you have more money at stake and there's less reason to take risk. And I have to say, this kind of hit home to me. And I wondered, once you're at that point of enough, and there are potentially lower risk ways to get a return. Because mm-hmm. clearly, you're not going to stick your money under the mattress or put it in a checking account making 0% interest. That is not what Rahab is advocating at all. I'll speak for him here. So maybe there is that time to take the foot off the pedal if you do have more money at stake. And especially in Rob's case, right, where it sounded like he was at fat fi times multiples from what I could tell. Like his his withdrawal rates seem to be minuscule. So for him, there's not much incentive to be ultra, ultra risky and potentially face a 50% drop in the market, which is entirely plausible at some point, right? In some point in Rob's lifetime, the stock market is going to go down 50% over a three-month period. That's almost a certainty. So if he decides that he doesn't want to take that risk and bear that when he's at fat fi. I can understand that. I really can. So definition of terms here. So if financial independence is reaching your annual expenses and then you multiply it times 25 and you have that amount in your investment vehicle, fat five would be some bloated version of that equation, right? (laughs) Some ridiculously bloated version of that equation, maybe double that. 
we actually talked about in episode 34R. I did not have that memorized. I had to go look it up. Uh, what is your risk tolerance when we assessed it? And I think one thing that I realized after listening to Rob's episode is that there's no badge of honor for being 100% equities. You don't get a five badge of heroics because your risk tolerance is so ridiculous that you can tolerate, you know, like it's one of those proud things. Oh, I'm 100% equities. I can do it. No, it's a, it's a practical calculation on what sort of volatility you want to see with your portfolio in terms of taking some of your chips off the table, like if you've hit your number plus and you're not as concerned about growth, you're more concerned about preservation, you don't want to see volatility, it doesn't make you a coward. I think some of like the 26-year-olds or 23-year-olds that hear this say, I will be 100% equities until death. <laughs> I, I could, because you don't lose unless you sell. That's even my mindset. As he was saying that, I was like, well, you don't lose the money. You're just, your shares are worth less than you buy more. And, and in terms of risk tolerance, bridging that gap is, you don't need it to grow as much. You're already there. You're just taking some of your chips off the table to give you a chance for growth, but it doesn't affect you quite as much. And I think that's a really important consideration. If you're listening to this and when you're, in your, this isn't really about age even, you know, if, if you're, you're listening to this in your twenties or you're listening to this in your fifties, certainly when you're going to need this money does come into play, but also how much risk you need to even be willing to tolerate. I mean, you may have enough, you may have more than enough. And at this point, it's really just looking for safe vehicles that will keep up with inflation and beyond. That is a reasonable place to take. And it's not, this isn't a pride thing. And I really, I can feel this because I feel this in some aspect of myself. I remember listening to JL Collins in episode 19 of our show. And we, we had him on again much later. And there was some naive aspect of, of me that was thinking, I think I can handle hundred percent. And I, and to be fair, I am, I have no bonds in my portfolio, none. So I'm, I'm saying this out of hand, but if I hit my number and then beyond, to the point where we're using words bloated to describe my equation, I'm going to take some chips off the table. I'm going to do it. I'm just saying it right now. And that does not make me less aggressive or less confident in my plan. It's just, I don't need, I don't need the growth as much. And so that's kind of a cool frame of mind. And for someone out there, maybe you needed to hear this today. Yeah. And Rob said this quote, it was the key is there's no one right answer that's going to work for everyone. And I think that's really apropos here. There might be someone listening to this. There might be someone of big earns caliber listening to this saying, <laughs> well, come on, guys, what are you talking about here? And I think it ultimately comes down to personal preference. Again, I'm not advocating pulling out of the market just because I've reached phi or reached you know, some fat phi number or some such and putting it in a checking account. That would be absolutely idiotic in my estimation. There is some degree of, okay, maybe you consider something that you otherwise wouldn't have. And I think I've always looked at index funds and said, all right, I'm going to be 100% index funds. And certainly the money that I have invested in the stock market is at this point probably 98% index funds. So that's not what I'm talking about with my life. I've diversified out to real estate and some of these crowdfunding real estate platforms that are, well, again, they're not safe. I would never use the word safe to describe them. There is an income stream that comes from them that while there's no huge potential upside, like getting a stock that happens to quadruple, that's not there with this. But I've seen six, seven, eight, nine percent returns. And that income stream is really nice. Like at this point, I am very content with a 7% return. Mm. If you could guarantee me, and I say that tongue in cheek, but if you could guarantee me a 7% return, I'm pretty darn happy with that. You know, I bet you there's someone listening to this right now that has $30,000, $50,000 sitting in a checking account making 0.05%. 
If you have any variation of that, if any version of that describes you, I want to tell you right now about uh, one of our affiliates, CIT Bank. You can find them at choosefi.com slash CIT. As of the date of this recording, you get a 1.85% interest rate with a minimum deposit of $100 if you continue to save at least $100 a month. That is, I mean, I can do the math on that, but that is a ridiculous, like that should be your bare minimum for what you're willing to accept if you're going to have any levels of wealth set aside in an emergency fund. Like if, if you're sitting there with more than $10,000 in a checking account making 0.05%, you need to slap your bank in the face and move on. Chooseify.com slash CIT. <laughs> and risk tolerance, you're speaking of how much you have in your checking account, and I know you're about to take the step to move it over to the savings account that actually gives you a decent return. Do that today. But you know, speaking of that, now we're talking about emergency fund. Risk tolerance doesn't just apply to your asset allocation, doesn't just apply to your portfolio. It applies to what you're doing with regards to your emergency fund. We had another episode, Brad, maybe you can look up the number for me, talking about, do you really need an emergency fund? And I think people that maybe... Um, found our show because of maybe the Dave Ramsey show, et cetera, have this idea that you have to have a fully funded three to six month emergency fund. And you really need to have that before you even start investing. There's some nuance there. I get that. But really the three to six month fully funded emergency fund can never be questioned. That is the goal. I think what that misses is the nuance of risk tolerance. I think what that misses is your ability to handle emergencies and as you start to no longer identify with being a dumpster fire for finances, but actually have a game plan for your financial future, you may find the farther you are on this path, the less you will ever need to draw on this emergency fund. And hear me on this. This is not about whether or not to have an emergency fund. It really is at its heart. It's where is the emergency fund? And as long as you have a plan to handle an emergency, you can handle an emergency of various sorts then right now I'm questioning the dogma of does that need to be in a checking account? Well, it shouldn't be after this conversation at bare minimum, it should be in a savings account. Right. And I think Rob was making the case. You had a perfect example of someone whose finances are not a dumpster fire, who has a plan to get out of debt within seven years, including their mortgage and never felt the need to have this quote unquote, fully funded emergency fund because of the variables, which he very carefully listed out for us. And yeah, just to close the loop on that, it was episode 66 with Big Earn. And I guess we talked about the emergency fund as well in 66R. But yeah, this emergency fund, I, I had never thought about it in that manner until I heard Big Earn and now, and now Rob talk about it. But it really makes sense. And, and again, it's really important that everyone listening to this hears what we're saying. This is not saying don't save money, right? Very clearly, you need to save money. That is the bedrock of financial independence. It's just the technical definition of an emergency fund, which I think for many people, it's money I have set aside that will sit there and do nothing, right? Is that a fair summation? Absolutely. I think it's challenging that notion with a thought experiment of what, what if, <laughs> right? What if? That's exactly right. What if? That is the perfect way to look at this. What are the scenarios where I would have an emergency fund? And now again, this is coming from a place of strength, a place of financial strength. So clearly you need savings. It's just, where do you put that money? Do you leave it sitting there doing nothing or do you invest it? And in which case we could talk through any type of emergency. And in most cases, you can put them on a credit card, right? Like, let's say what's an emergency. You your car, the engine breaks and you have to spend a couple thousand bucks. All right, you can clearly put that on a credit card. And now again- But how will you pay off the credit card right. in time? It was a, a $10,000 bill. Right. So in that case, 
you have, let's just say hypothetically, you had taken that money that would have been sitting there doing nothing, earning nothing in a checking account, you would have, let's say, invested it hypothetically in a total stock market index fund. Very simply, if you pay for that expense with a credit card, you have the number of days, you probably have at least 30 days to pay off that credit card bill at minimum. What you very simply do is you log into your brokerage of choice, Vanguard, Schwab, Fidelity, whoever it is, you just sell some of those index funds, you transfer the money back to your checking account. That probably would happen as quickly as two business days. It might take up to four or five at the most, I would think. But realistically, that's well under the 30 days that you have to pay that credit card bill completely interest-free. Right? But what if the market goes down? <laughs> All right, let me, let me, let me, I don't want to say about you. I was thinking through that and that's a great point. But the key is you're losing to inflation when your money is just sitting in the checking account. And the longer you have it there, the more likely you are to miss out on these returns. The market stays at or near the top 90% of the time. When you hear people say, wow, the market is at an all-time high. Well, they're always saying that because the market is at or near the top nearly all the time. Now the market does drop. In fact, the, the situation you mentioned it's one of many options, right? That is a what if scenario. You could have other options for how to answer it. So there's two other ones that come to mind. So one is I invest with M1. Uh, that's my one of the platforms that I use for some of my taxable accounts. And in M1, you can take out a loan, a securities loan. And it's at a variable interest rate. And you can take up to 30% of the amount that you have invested. And you get a... Um, it's a variable interest rate. So, you know, it, it may depend on the time, but right now I think it's like in between three and 4% on that loan. A HELOC, if you have a mortgage and have access to a HELOC, this is what uh, Rob was describing. You could take out a HELOC, which will probably have a, a variable interest rate in that same kind of realm, three to 4%-ish. That's another option as well. The point is not necessarily to have just one strategy and that's the only thing you can depend on, but it's to recognize that there are many, many different ways. And if your worst downside is a three to 4% interest rate and your upshot is market returns over years and years where you get to the point that you don't, you've started reclassifying things. They're not even emergencies anymore. They're just lumpy life. That's what happens when you get more financial bandwidth. And if you have to stay out of the market for years, because you have to keep that fully funded emergency fund uh, for years, you're just sucking the wind out of the sails, my friend. You're back in drift state. Don't do that. Lumpy life. I like that, Jonathan. I think you <laughs> I might have it. just coined something here. No, no, no. Jesse from YNAB, we, we recorded oh, an yeah, interview yeah, with him. It's okay. coming out in a few months. And he said it. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm holding on to that one. <laughs> I'm going to use that later. <laughs> at least there's some attribution. I like it. But, but yeah, that is a perfect way of looking at it. Life is lumpy. There are expenses that are lumpy. But they're very rarely true emergencies where you need to just come up with a lump of cash. Like, I mean, you're not walking around with a suitcase of cash, right? In all likelihood. It'd be cooler if you did. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, even if something happened, like you needed a new roof, if there was some calamity, you could transfer your money in two or three business days, right? I think that is really what we're talking about here. So long story short, think differently. Look at a problem a little bit differently. And maybe say, all right, there might be a different answer than what I've always believed. I think that is ultimately the hallmark of a phi thinker. Look at a problem a little bit differently. All right, guys, we're going to go and switch gears. We have recorded a segment we're going to go and play for you now. Uh, this is with Noah and Becky. Brad, wh what episode was it that we interviewed Noah and Becky originally? <laughs> all right, Jonathan, you have dropped a whole bunch of uh, <laughs> work for me to do here. So, Going back, Dominic Cortuccio's first episode was 33, Design yes. Your Future. And Noah and Becky were originally on an episode 40 called Take a Gap Year. 
All right, cool. Well, uh, we have done all the intro and everything, so we're going to go ahead and play that for you right now. We wanted to come back to this idea of the gap year because it's something that many of you have either talked about, asked about, or are currently in the stages of researching. And the reason that it's relevant for today's conversation is that uh, Noah and Becky, who we have on the show here with us today, actually did this. So not only did they ask the question, they do the research, but they acted on it. Noah and Becky in their late 20s decided to go ahead and take this quote unquote gap year. So today on the show, we're going to do a quick refresher. What is this idea? What did they actually do? And then when the gap year came to an end, what are they doing now? Because all of this has happened. I think for those of you that are thinking, I feel like I'm stuck. I feel like I'm in a rut. I need some way to hit this reset button. I think this conversation can be valuable for you. And Noah and Becky, welcome back to the Choose If I podcast. Thank you. Happy to be back. So guys, it's been two years since we've had you on the show. It has. It's gone so fast. Yeah, it was September of 2017 when episode 40 aired. You guys at that point were planning this gap year. So fill the audience in on the concept of a gap year. Yeah, we were kind of both a little burnt out in our job and we wanted to take a break and do something crazy. And so we decided to quit and take a year off. We did a little road trip just in our Mazda 3 hatchback and bounced around hotels, friends and family, and just explored a bunch of the country that we hadn't seen before. Practically speaking, you guys were both working in various forms of corporate America. Noah, I think you were working for a tech company. And Becky, what industry were you working in? I'm a nurse. I was working at a hospital. Okay. I want to talk about what it looked like to unwind your corporate jobs. And then also you have a home and a life that you've built together to be able to extract yourself from that kind of what was the process that you had to go through? Yeah, so it was a pretty significant transition. Becky was a little burnt out. I was ready to kind of move on to the next job or find something new. And we decided to to quit and take this year off and travel around. And there's a lot of logistics that came with that because, yeah, we had bought a place in Seattle. We definitely weren't fi at the time. We were maybe halfway, probably not quite. So we had some savings, but definitely couldn't walk away forever. Uh, so we had to figure out what we're going to do with our house, what we're going to do with all of our stuff. Uh, we had a dog. And just to quickly check off what we did with those things. like uh, So we had the townhouse in Seattle. We still own that. And it's currently being rented out. We found a property manager to where we wouldn't have bought the same place if we knew that we were going to rent it out in the future. But since we did, we had it. And I feel like the easiest or the method of least resistance was to just rent it out. And we'll probably just keep that as a long-term rental property to kind of diversify our portfolio. As for all of our stuff, we basically liquidated it all. We sold all of our furniture, pretty much all of our possessions, got the smallest possible storage unit we could find and saved some keepsakes and important things like board games that we didn't want to bring on the road with us, even though we did bring our favorites. And then uh, with the dog, we were fortunate enough to have Becky's sister watch him for us down in California. So that was one of our first stops on the road trip was to drop him off and let him hang out with his uh, doggy cousin for the year. So that was just, I, I guess, a small portion of the logistics to actually go from working full-time to traveling full-time without any income coming in. But those are the basics. Yeah, I want to talk about that, without any income coming in. So I'm, I'm curious, when you were proposing this idea and really starting to research it, what were the things that were scary? What were the things that you had to work through? And if you're putting yourself in the situation of someone listening to this, they're maybe saying, wow, how do they do this? Could I do this? What were some of the biggest things that you had to work through? I think if I could go with the top three, it would probably be, how are we going to pay for the trip? So we're on the path to FI, weren't there yet. How are we going to fund this trip without significantly impacting our goals? 
the way we did that was to, we kind of slowed down our investing over the six to eight months where we kind of came up with this, this idea and formulated it. We slowed down the money we were putting into the market and set aside a pretty big cash buffer, about a year's worth of expenses for us in Seattle, and uh, decided to see how long that would last us on the road. Because we had the flexibility of time, we could always cut it short or extend it longer if that wasn't the right amount. But that worked out pretty well. The second one is healthcare. So you have to have a plan for that. We kind of timed quitting our jobs to the very end of the calendar year because that made it very simple to jump onto um, one of the Affordable Care Act like marketplace plans um, in our state of residence, even though we weren't in that state for very long for the year because we were traveling full time. Um, we were able to get a health care plan through them. And then I think the third thing, which might be the biggest one, is how are you going to transition back into the job world if you're not FI yet? And those are all things that we had to tackle. And for that last one, uh, because I'm in tech and Becky's a nurse, we're fortunate to be in very high demand jobs, at least in the current state of the world, to where we weren't super concerned about finding something, but maybe not something as good as we had before. But we're definitely confident we'd be able to find something and transition our way back into to working and saving again at the end of the trip. And yeah, I wanted to ask about health insurance, because I'm sure so many people heard what you said, but want more. With the ACA plans and the subsidies, was this something that you had projected because our income is going to be so low? Did you qualify for subsidies? How did that work? Did you just pay full freight? I mean, talk people through the actual logistics of getting that plan for the first time. Yeah. So for health insurance, like was, we definitely carefully planned it ahead of time. And uh, as I mentioned, we, we quit our jobs at the very beginning of the year so that we had very low income and we could qualify for kind of those maximum subsidies. And it was kind of a game of falling above the, the Medicaid line where you would have to go on Medicaid, but falling below the income line to where you wouldn't qualify for any subsidies or maybe not as many subsidies. So we actually used kind of a trick that we learned from the FI world, which is doing a Roth conversion. So once I left my job, I was able to convert my traditional 401k to a traditional IRA. And then over the course of the year, or I guess at the very end of the year, I uh, calculated up our taxes, figured out how much income we wanted to have, uh, income in air quotes, because we're kind of picking the number, and then uh, transferred that much out of the traditional IRA into the Roth IRA to generate kind of some fake income that works for IRS purposes and ACA subsidy purposes. Um, and we kind of came in right at that optimal number for us to get the maximum subsidies to where I want to say we were only paying about maybe like $10 a month in premiums. It was almost entirely subsidized. So, so it was extremely cheap. But that's with the caveat that we did not have to use it the entire year. Yeah, yeah. Great point. I want to come back to that just because I realized that this is a calculation that individuals need to do. Where did you go to run the count? Cal- like, was there a website that you used that you found particularly helpful as you were calculating those subsidy cliffs? And then also for you guys as a married couple, no kids, going out on the road and doing this, what did that optimal number end up being? And how specific was that to Washington? I want to say the number is very federal-based. There's some states that haven't adopted expanded Medicaid Medicaid, Medicare. I'm going to get the term wrong. Um, in some states that have, Washington is one that has to where there's kind of a specific number that I think applies to the majority of states at this point. Um, and I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it was somewhere, I think around 
somewhere in between twenty and thirty thousand dollars in in income for the year yeah. to where we would it was just above the cutoff to where we would get the maximum subsidy. So declare I'm just trying to I'm trying to pin this down at on what calendar year were you generating this income that you needed? So for instance, if you were taking the trip, if all of twenty eighteen was the year you were taking the trip, were you generating the amount of income you needed in twenty seventeen to prepare for twenty eighteen? Or was it in twenty eighteen you drew that money over so that you would have that to be able to prove that out at the end of the year? Just kind of timeline wise, is it the active year that's important or the prior year? Um, it's going to be the active year that you actually need the health insurance in. So I quit my job in, in the middle of January of 2018. Uh, so I had like one paycheck for 2018. Um, and then at the very end of the year, I figured out how much our rental property would bring in income or not because you have to depreciate it. And so I had to subtract some money out of there. And then we converted the rest from our traditional IRA to our Roth IRA to hit that magic income number that we needed. Awesome. Now we have the benefit here. What I love about this conversation is we actually interviewed on the front end when you were planning this and a lot of these same themes you were actually having to work through. Here's what I think we're going to do. Now we're looking back and say, here's what we did, did it work? And we're kind of vetting these hypotheses, if you will. So now going back to the first two, the other one you mentioned that you led with is how much is this going to cost? What was your projections? And then how did it end up landing? Yeah, we honestly had no idea. I mean, never doing this before, we kind of just assumed that we would maybe spend about the same that we spent in Seattle. So that's why we we estimated with a year's worth of expenses. And since we've been tracking our finances for years now, we knew about what that number was. So we saved that amount of money and ended up spending a lot less than that, which was very surprising. So we so about in Seattle, we spent like 60 grand a year, just the two of us. And on the road, we spent about 43000 That's amazing. So the 43000 I guess this gets to what did everyday life look like? Were you staying in hotels? Were, I know you're into travel rewards, so I assume you had a lot of uh, rewards points to stay in <coughs> hotels. Talk us through the day-to-day life and, and how that impacted costs. Sure. So, I mean, uh, you definitely nailed it. Like ahead of ahead of the gap year and even like the few years prior, like we were earning a lot of airline points and miles playing the, the credit card game. Uh, we didn't really have a purpose for a lot of those. And our vacation time didn't allow us to travel, uh, I guess, as much as we were earning. So we kind of had a surplus ahead of time. But using that and being strategic on the road, we stayed the majority of time in hotels. So over 230 nights in hotels. And then about 100 nights with friends and family in varying capacities. And then a few other nights randomly here and there, whether it was camping or on a cruise ship or something else. And like because we had saved up a bunch of points ahead of time, we actually spent about one and a half million hotel points over the course <laughs> of the trip, which saved us a, a ton of money on lodging. That's incredible. That's why I'm curious. So out of that 40 odd thousand, were there any lumpy type expenses? You just mentioned cruising. Was that something that you took as like an extravagance? Were there any items like that that lumped in in the calendar year? Yeah, cruise was definitely our our biggest expense. We did an 11-night Caribbean cruise. And you can't really get points, you know, savings with that. So we paid full price for that. But um, other than that, it was mostly food. That was a big expense for us. And then um, car maintenance was probably... Which was just basic stuff. And we had one flat tire that we had to fix. And regular oil changes and gas every pretty much every week we were spending. So where did your travels take you? So we started in Seattle and did the coast all the way down to California and dropped off our dog with my sister in San Francisco. Kept going south and then went through Arizona, 
New Mexico, Texas. We had a wedding in Austin in March that we wanted to be at. And then we realized we missed a bunch of stuff. So we backtracked and went back through New Mexico, Arizona, hit all of the parks, in, like the national parks in Utah, Grand Canyon, all that stuff. And then went through Colorado, spent a good month in Colorado. We have some family there and we loved it. Um, and didn't really want to leave. But then we spent the majority of the Midwest with family in the summer, Chicago, Indiana, Minnesota. We did a camp fi in Minnesota. And then we went up through the UP. We actually went through Canada for about a month and then came back down through New England and um, spent New England in the fall and then met up with you guys <laughs> in Virginia and then came down through the Carolinas and then spent winter in Florida. We have family in Tampa, so we spent Christmas there. Yeah, we did Thanksgiving in New Orleans That's and then hopped on a boat or a ship out of there. You can't call a cruise ship a boat. It's <laughs> like a faux pas. Hopped on a ship out of there for 11 nights and then, yeah, spent uh, the holidays with family in Florida. Uh, we definitely designed the trip a little bit around weather to where we're in the northernest part during the summer and got to the south by the time it was uh, cold out or getting to winter. So we never had to pack heavy winter coats or anything. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, this is, I mean, you guys really did a full year. It's incredible. And you, you went through all the seasons and you kind of were able to check out all these awesome, awesome destinations. And then I think, and this is a huge question for people. Then you come back, right? You had not reached financial independence yet. You weren't leaving forever. That wasn't the plan. You came back and you're now making the choice to re-enter the workforce. And I know you said your industries are receptive, but you still have to now explain this gap on the resume. And I'm just curious, how did those conversations go? Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of, so we traveled for just about 12 months straight and then decided, all right, I guess, I guess we've had enough. Um, let's, let's get back into the real world. Let's start earning money and making our way back towards five. So, uh, we planned a two month transition period to where we settled into Denver into an Airbnb with the goal of that being, let's at least one of us find a job by the end of this two months and figure out where we're going to live for the next year plus. And by one of us, we mean Noah, because yeah. his uh, <laughs> his industry is a little bit more profitable than mine. So we wanted him to to get the good job first. And mine is state dependent. So I since and since he was applying kind of everywhere, I decided to wait and see where he got a job before I applied for licensure anywhere. And yeah, we, so he kind of studied up and did some interviews and. Well, yeah, we settled down there. I did a few months of, <laughs> or I guess a, a couple of weeks of brushing up my resume, a couple more weeks of uh, studying to make sure I uh, knew what I was talking about and was still kind of fresh as if I uh, would be a valuable employee. And then, yeah, applied to like a dozen different companies, several in the Colorado area because we really liked it and a couple in Seattle, a couple in the Bay Area. And uh, yeah, just went on a interviewing spree for phone interviews and on-site interviews at a bunch of different places. Ended up with a couple offers and then took the the best offer from there. So we ended up in, in California. And then if you want to talk about how you transitioned after we got there. Yeah, mine wasn't as smooth as I wanted it to be. Um, I thought that I would have a little bit more power and control, but it turns out that's not the case with nursing. You kind of just have to take what you can get. So I... I walked into probably 15 different clinics with my resume and said, I'm ready to work. I'm available. I have experience. And none of them were hiring or they didn't have nurses in the clinic. They had medical assistants, which was depressing. But I really didn't want to go back to a hospital. That was my goal. But I had to kind of bite the bullet and, and do that. So I actually took a travel nurse assignment and did a contract at a hospital for 13 weeks 
So I was just, I wasn't a permanent staff member. I just, I was contracted through an agency and I worked there and I hated it. It was awful. It was not the best, you know, three months of my life, but I made it work. And through that, I actually met somebody who got me my current job, which I love. I am in a clinic is primary care, completely different from labor and delivery that I was doing before, but it is part-time. It is less stressful. It's no weekends, no holidays. And I could not be happier where I'm at right now. Yeah. And I don't want to glaze over your question too quickly, but like during the actual interviews, like I was very upfront about having that year gap. Like it was very apparent on my resume and I was usually the first one to bring it up in interviews. And it kind of ranged from neutral to positive. Like some people just kind of brushed past it and didn't really ask me any questions. And then other people were like, oh man, that's amazing. Like, how did you make that work? Like, tell me more. It never seemed to get a negative reaction, but I mean, you don't know how people feel, uh, what they're not telling you. But it was definitely a positive for several of the people I talked to. That's cool. Did you ever bring up FI or financial independence at all? Like, did they ask, how were you able to afford this? I, I kept it really vague just to be like, we, we were good savers and we wanted to, to get some travel in while we were still young. We didn't really go into much more detail than that with actually <laughs> yeah, how did kind, we afford it. Kind of figured, but you never know, right? So, <laughs> yeah. I'm curious. So Noah, you left a brand name, world famous company. And, and I'm curious when you, you have this gap year and some people looked at it favorably, some people, whatever, were you able to get a job at a comparable company? Do you feel that this gap year hurt you in any way? Was it neutral? Was it helpful? I mean, I'm not looking for the name of the company, obviously, but from a career arc perspective, did this hinder you at all? No, it was actually, I would say, a, a net positive for sure. I mean, some of that's luck. Like there were several companies like I kind of had my mind set on that I applied to and it didn't work out. But I went from one fang company to a different fang company to where I, I still feel very comfortable in my career. I'm still making a really good amount of money. And I think it's definitely a, a step upwards in the career direction. Yeah. And that was kind of my question to the general reset. As you guys think about this and you kind of answered that to some degree, but maybe you now as a couple, if, if you look at what this gap year did and allow you to step out of where you may have felt, all right, this is just what we're doing and we're doing what we're doing. And there's a very linear path here and we're maybe we're okay with it, but you know, it is what it is. This is effectively a reset. And now you're making the choice to engage back in. How do you look at this now? How does this kind of shape, you know, the, the next step of your journey together? I think one of the biggest things, like at least relative to this podcast, is that we're we used to kind of be on like a beeline to FI, like how fast can we get there? How can we optimize every single thing in our life to get there as soon as possible? And after taking this year off, like that urgency, that sense of needing to get there as soon as possible has kind of gone away. And I think some of that was just like kind of, like you said, hitting the reset button. Now we're both in new jobs that we're enjoying and we're not in any rush to get away from them. And we're still very much on the path to FI and still saving a lot of our money. But it's definitely not like the 100% focus like it used to be in our previous jobs. Like we're definitely trying to balance more of how do we make the most of life now and not compromise on things that we really enjoy on the path to FI uh, while still making good progress. It was really cool to see our investments grow while we weren't doing anything as well. Like that was super eye-opening for me because I've always been skeptical that this is like never going to work and we're never going to be able to live <laughs> off of the money that we have. But actually seeing the numbers and not working for a year and seeing them go up and that, I mean, that was really exciting for me to kind of be like, oh, this is, this is going to work and we're going to be okay. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good dry run for FI in the future, I think. Yeah. <laughs> like full fire. <laughs> That's I love so it. great. Guys, I'm curious, 
about your lessons from the actual travel. I've learned over the last couple of years, and albeit I've done nowhere near as much travel as you, but, but we've taken each August. As a family, we've traveled together. The first year, we were kind of hopping around every couple of days from Airbnb to Airbnb, and it just felt a little rushed for us. And this past summer, we went to Maui, and we just stayed there for three plus weeks. We unpacked once, and we lived there, and we got into a routine. I even went to CrossFit there a couple of times, and I know, Becky, <laughs> fitness has become really important to you over this past year. And I'm curious about your life lessons. Are there any things that you took away that, that surprised you, frankly, that you thought, oh, it was going to be like this, but I've determined for myself life looks better in X way. I mean, talk us through those kind of lessons, if, if there are any, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely started the trip a little fast. You know, that first month, we, we treated it as a vacation. And we're used to taking vacations where you only have a week and you have to fit in as much as you can. And so we were just knocking things out day after day. And two or three weeks in, we were exhausted. And we're like, I don't think we can keep this up for another year. So we definitely slowed down. And we're, uh, I would say that we were still traveling every like four to five days, but we weren't doing as much on the, on like every day. We would at least take a day or two off every other day and just kind of relax. And we kind of just realized that, you know, the saying, wherever you go, there you are, is very true. Like you don't change as people, it's a, you know, regardless of where you are. And we just kind of realized that it became a lifestyle for us, just the, the day-to-day, you know, activities that we did. We, we didn't try to like cram a bunch of stuff in. Yeah. I mean, we definitely found our balance. And like Becky said, like wherever you go, there you are to where, even though we, it was like a total 180 from our lives before, like living in one place, having a routine, both going to work every week, that was totally changed. Like we were in a new city, like once or twice a week, we we're in brand new places doing brand new things. We fell into a routine and it all, it all became kind of normal by the end to where all the cities kind of started to look the same, um, except for like some of the big ones, of course, and the national parks, which are mostly unforgettable. But all those little cities in between, like weren't that exciting towards the end of the trip. And I think we just kind of found like no matter where we go or no matter where we are, like one, we're probably going to be happy because we have each other and we're just going to make the most of whatever situation we find ourselves in. But also we have the flexibility in the future, I think, to just kind of pick whatever lifestyle sounds good and we're going to make the most of it and then have the flexibility to adjust it as we go along the way. Yeah, that's really interesting. So one of the things that was kind of embedded in that is just by giving yourself the, so many people feel like one of the things that are non-negotiables is they're never moved. They'll do everything else, but they will never move. And what you're saying is we found that we were pretty much happy everywhere. We could be anywhere and be happy. And if it seems so scary to just pick up your lives and move to another area. This idea of this trial run, this dry run where you're just going to go back. You know, if you find out you're miserable everywhere else, except for your current neighborhood that you're in, then fine. But you may never know. I mean, maybe there's this wonderful outcome on the other side and you can just, if you can use a little bit of flexibility, your life is going to cost a fraction of the amount. So just for the audience, listen to this. We, again, we did interview you on the front end of this trip. That was episode 40 of the podcast, but people that are listening to this now, they want to find out more about what you guys are up to. What is the best way for them to do that? Uh, so we have a blog that was much more active before the trip and was somewhat active during the trip, particularly our Instagram page, which is definitely worth checking out. That's at moneymetagame.com or just at moneymetagame. 
And uh, yeah, feel free to send us a message or an email or anything else uh, to get a hold of us. And guys, just one last thing. So you said your life in Seattle costs somewhere in the 60s, right? Do you have any sense? I mean, we're most of the way through 2019 now. Do you have any sense of how much your new life is going to cost you? I know you said you're not as much on this hyperdrive path to FI anymore. Have you seen your spending kind of relax a little bit? I mean, where where are you in that regard? It's so hard to say like if we've inflated our lifestyle or not, because in aspects we have and other aspects, I think we're even better than we used to be. Um, but in general, it's definitely going to be more expensive here living in Silicon Valley than it was in Seattle. About six months in, part of it's hard to say because we had to like completely buy brand new furniture. We were kind of like starting fresh from nothing. So that's expenses that won't recur. But I think we're going to end up somewhere in the $90,000 range in the Bay Area. Noah and Becky, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank yeah, thanks for having us. So MK, let's go ahead and bring you into this conversation. And uh, I'm actually kind of curious, you know, we talked about a gap year back in episode 40, and then we have them again on today to kind of rehash and tell us how it went. Did you and Jason ever consider doing a gap year? We've talked about it, but so for me now, I can work anywhere in the world, right? I'm a, I'm an author, yes, you, you know, I'm doing this, it's digital, but Jason's job is really locked to his location. And there's maybe only a couple other major cities in the world where he feels like he could find a similar job. And so we've talked about doing a gap year, but his thought is always, well, what if I couldn't find a job when I got back? And so I think hearing Noah and Becky's story, you know, obviously Becky being a nurse, there's a demand for nurses and quality healthcare professionals across the country. And she has great skills. So I think maybe she felt confident she could find another job. But for Noah, you know, hearing their story and knowing them personally, where they thought, okay, we want to be in Colorado. The jobs aren't in Colorado, but now they're in San Francisco. He has a great job. Like, I think this gives confidence to anybody who's doubting, like, could I really do this? Yes, you can. Like, things worked out just fine. They had this great year. They were able to find jobs again. They were in a great location. And now they're rejuvenated going back into this lifestyle that they've designed. So I really love this story because so many people think, well, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. Well, here's an example of people who did it the whole way through. So I think that's going to really inspire some people to hopefully make some positive changes for their situation. Yeah. And for me, one of the things that I heard is because of this reset that they hit on their life, Brad, the urgency to actually reach a number of financial independence to some degree has been alleviated. Sure, they're still crushing. In fact, they might even be making more progress now. But that sense of we need to keep our head in the sand until we get there was largely imposed on jobs that they were barely tolerating. What if that's all you think there is? It's just keep my head down and grind it out. I got 12 years left and I'm done. But all you really needed was just a reset button, be able to hit the refresh. Yeah, well, isn't that interesting? Travel just gives you a different perspective on life and the world, just seeing other cultures, seeing what's really important in life. And this is a perfect example. They realized, all right, there's no real pressing need to just go crazy. And like you said, put your head down and rush, rush, rush. They can take their foot off the pedal just a tiny little bit and still get to FI in a hugely expedited manner, but do it for what works for them in this season of their life. And I think that's something we've hit on. I know that's something that Jillian Johnsrud has brought into our lives, the season of life. And I think it is constantly changing. And I think that's really important to evaluate what is lighting you up in this season of your life. 
Brad, since you mentioned Jillian, her podcast, Everyday Courage, is actually going live on January 3rd. So that is a reminder to our audience to tune in in the new year, in the new decade, to listen to what Jillian is going to be bringing us. And we're very excited about that. Yeah, MK, this is incredibly exciting. So the Choose F5 podcast family is getting a little bit bigger here. We're doubling. Jonathan, I know we're super excited about Everyday Courage. I am. Uh, so as the podcast producer, it's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on the one end, I was like, wow, I, um, I doubled down on some work on mine, but I'm, I mean, there's no one I'd rather do that for than Jillian. What, I mean, I think the, the type of material and the content that she's going to be bringing to the Choose of I family, it needs to be out there. You know, I think this is a show that needs to happen. And so I'm happy to support that. And it's exciting. I mean, it's two or three years ago since the last time that I kind of launched a podcast from scratch and you saw I'm bringing you all these ideas and you're like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Settle down, take a break. Yeah. But, you know, I kind of feel like I have a polished process for what actually needs to happen. So getting to work through that with her and work through all the different things that go into place with creating an awesome show. Uh, I'm excited to see what comes out of it. And I can tell you, having now listened to several of the episodes, it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. And I guess that launches four weeks from today, basically four weeks from the date this Friday roundup drops. She says January 3rd is actually her birthday. So you, what could be a better birthday present for her than if you're listening to this to make sure on January 3rd, you go check it out, Everyday Courage, and press subscribe. That would be pretty cool. And last week, just to follow up with the year-end tax checklist. So Sean Mullaney gave us a lot of great points. Jason, actually, we were listening to the podcast in the car. He paused it and waited till we got home so he could take notes. Yes. Uh, so it was very helpful and informative. And we did put together that tax checklist. So we yeah. really wanted to make sure we got that interview out as quickly as we could, but we didn't have all the final touches on the checklist yet, but it is now available. So if you go to choosefi.com slash tax checklist, one word, tax checklist. I'm not going to spell it. It's oh a lot God. of letters. But if you <laughs> know how to spell tax and you know how to spell checklist and not put spaces, <laughs> chooseify.com slash tax checklist. And you can see everything that Sean outlined there and you can actually print it out and check off that you've done everything Ooh. by the accurate dates that he mentioned. Now, one other thing that Sean mentioned during that episode last week was about the pin that you can get through the IRS to give you, you a custom pin every year so that nobody can steal your identity and claim your tax return and cause you a huge headache. Great idea, great concept. Jason wanted to sign up right away. And then I had to tell him, yeah, so Sean told us that they actually turned off the signups for that until January. So if you are listening to this and you went out last week to the IRS website and you're like, yeah, I'm going to get my pin and you couldn't do it, that's why the government is holding. You can't sign up until January. But sign up in January, the same day that you subscribe to Jillian's podcast and listen to it, go back to the IRS website and sign up for your pin. Unless you're in Virginia. Because. Yeah. Oh, that's right. It was only certain states, but I live in Florida. So I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. Of course. So. Of course. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, on my end, I just wanted to remind everybody that our book, Choose FI, Your Blueprint to Financial Independence can be found anywhere the books are found. And I would just say, if you are an avid listener to this podcast episode and you have someone that you've been trying to get on board with financial independence, maybe you have a, a friend, a child, a partner, Someone that you know would benefit from having a game plan for their financial future. This would be a wonderful gift and be a wonderful way that you could support the show. If you are more on the frugal bandwagon and you want a chance to win a copy of this, we actually do a drawing at the end of every uh, Friday roundup. Super simple to enter. All you need to do is just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes, follow the instructions there, leave us a short written review, and then send us an email to feedback at chooseify.com, letting us know that you left a review and what screen name you left it under. Hear this, the odds are amazing. We give away one book for every five written reviews that we get. And then we announce a winner 
on the Friday Roundup. And Kay, how many winners do we have today? Hey guys, today we have one winner and her name is Emily. Emily writes, life-changing. This podcast is amazing. Where else can you learn about everything from tax-efficient strategies to travel rewards to chicken shawarma? Content is well thought out and always actionable. I've optimized in so many areas of my life thanks to you. You hear how we're always referencing back some of those earlier episodes, right? Where we kind of laid this blueprint out. Certainly you could binge listen, but if you're like Jason, you want to take notes, you want to defile a book, you know, and have something you can incorporate in your life. Get this book, get this book as uh, for, for, for 2019 and beyond. Yeah, chooseify.com slash book. And that'll send you to a page with links for everywhere to buy the books. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.